Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And I'm Christine Van Gein, the CCF litigation director. Joanna is away. In today's episode, we'll tell you about a case where a student visa was rejected for a Chinese student who might be a spy. And we'll share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at some of the legal opinions this week that didn't quite land. But first, I'm going to tell you about my run-in with the police on Boxing Day (laughs) and what I think this has to say about uh, the police's response to to crime in general. So, uh, Christine, I've already told you the story, but for our listeners, I'll go through it because it's kind of crazy. I I love this story, so I can't wait to hear it again. (laughs) Um, Okay, so basically, my partner and I pulled up on our street and park a few houses down from where we live and we got out of the car and started walking to our house this man started calling after us john john stop and we're like ignoring them because we don't know what they're talking about and so i yell back we're not you know we're not john and then they quickly like catch up to us and one of them says like well one of you is john and uh, we don't know what's going on, but they're being like very aggressive. And so I turn around and start walking back to the car and I hear them say that the shorter of the two, the other one's like this tall, scary guy. Um, the short guy says, you know, so-and-so wants her money. She wants her 14,000 and we're going to get it one way or, or another. <laughs> oh my so we're gosh. like, um, so we're like really, really frightened. I jump in the car. My partner's standing in front of the car, like parked on the street in between our car and like the car in front of us and they sort of surround him and they're I I can't tell what they're saying but they're just he's trying to explain that you know we're not this guy and uh I call 911 911 doesn't pick up of course so of course of course naturally and so my partner like pushes past the the bigger scarier guy which was a bold move considering we're not sure if they have like a knife or whatever I like that so, during this whole interaction, you were hiding in the car. Well, you know, people have their fl- their their fight or flight response. My <laughs> my response is always flight. It's like something you need to know about me. I'm just gone. So anyway, um, this is more more fight, I guess. Um, but we go to the cop station and we're scared. We're like we're we run into the cops and we're like, oh my god, this thing happened. And these guys are we're waiting outside our house and they threaten us. And the cop at the front desk at the cop station says. Well, just go home and, you know, call, call us if something happens. And I'm like, something did just happen. There's guys waiting outside our house demanding like $14,000 and not letting us like move on the sidewalk. And um, so he's like, well, the problem is we have no officers available. And, you know, like I can see officers that are standing there and they're like having conversations about what they're going to do on the weekend or whatever. Um, but he's like, well, if you if you really need help, just call 911. And I'm like inside a police station. So and anyway, also 911 wasn't answering. <laughs> they did not answer initially. No. So this time I call them back. The dispatcher answers and she's honestly like really dismissive. And she seems to be like the subtext I'm getting is that nothing bad really happened to us because they didn't use any specifically violent language, even though they're saying, you know, so and so wants her money. Uh, we're going to get it one way or another. And so after that, this cop at the front desk, he knows we've called 911. He sort of like whispers to us so his other uh, cop friends don't hear. 
And he's like, you know, guys, don't leave. Just stay here. Wait a few hours. There's going to be a shift change and you'll get to talk to a detective then. But if you leave, the detectives might not call you back. You know, it might be days, basically. So crazy. So we sat there and waited. And um, while we're there, this people keep coming in. And like the this one group comes in and they say they have their story. They're like, okay, there's I think it's three guys. And they're like, we have a we have this fourth guy we've subletted our room to and um he's being ve- very aggressive he's destroying the p- property he's making noise all hours of the night and now he's like threatened to stab his sister and the cop this was a different cop um she says well you know we can't really help you that's like a landlord tenant board issue and uh, my advice to you would be like, don't antagonize him. Just stay out of the hallways, stay out of the kitchen. I don't know that the landlord tenant board deals with stabbing. I, I feel like, like that he, seems like a police issue. I feel like it might be right. And then they reiterated this. Right. And the cop was like, well, you know, she, she I, I think what the cop said was something like she, they didn't threaten. He didn't threaten to stab you. Right. So there's nothing we can do, basically. And they left. And then another guy comes in and he's like, I was in here before I filed a police report about these threatening text messages I'm getting. And this guy, you know, I'm scared of this guy. And he, he sent me a new text that says, I'm going to come by your workplace. I'm going to, I'm going to come by to have a chat. And this guy's like scared of this other person, whoever they are. And the cop is like, well, maybe he just wants to have a chat. And the guy's like, no, this guy wants to like kill me. He doesn't want to have a chat. <laughs> and the guy's like, but legally, that's not a threat. So there's nothing we can do. And so this guy just left too. So anyway, back to my story. So it turns out there's a This guy. is like all you're sitting in the police department or police building yeah. like watching this parade of rejection. <laughs> yeah. So the police are just not wanting to deal with, with um, threats, basically violent threats. So we do get interviewed by a couple cops. They're very empathetic. They ask good questions. Like I felt like they, they were doing their job. They offered to come back, drive back to our house with us to make sure we feel safe, uh, which we wanted them to do just in case these guys are still standing there for whatever reason. And we drive back and we drive past the house of this guy who we think the mistaken identity, um, the the guy that we're being mistaken for. And because you know, you know who you think yeah, it is, right? So so that's an important point. So basically, I didn't know this at the time, but it turns out my partner knew that the sketchy guy down the street has the exact same car as us. So we think that, you know, these guys were looking for this other guy. They saw our car pull up and they just assumed that were him so we figured so they think you're john because john exactly has the same car and lives on the same street yeah and we were really close to this this sketchy john guy's house so the cops like you know it didn't take much to figure out what was going on but we we still wanted them to you know make sure these guys are gone and you know check out uh, what's happening at this house and so we drove past the house the door is wide open this is like you know boxing day it's cold all the lights are off. So our instant thought is like, you know, these guys have gone into the house. They've like kicked the door open to, I don't know, go search for this John guy or, or, or to steal whatever he has in his house. If he has money, the $14,000 or yeah. Or maybe they're, I don't know, who knows, maybe, maybe he has drugs in his house. What, who knows? I have no idea. So the cops see this too, because they've driven us home and they freak out and they call back up and there's like a bunch of cop cars come. I think it's six cops in total and they go 
to see what's going on in this house. It turns out there's someone there. We don't know who he is. Um, we can hear them chatting with the cops for a long time. And uh, the cops call us back and they're like, you know, the cops say we tried to talk to John and he didn't want to talk to us. So that's all we know. And, you know, we're kind of over it now, but it was a little bit disturbing that the cops didn't want to help us when we felt, you know, afraid and... Or anyone, any of those people who came into the police station. Yeah, exactly. And it's already sort of well known in Toronto that police don't respond to things like shoplifting. They barely bother at all if your house is broken into, you know, they might come and uh, investigate like two days later, but they, they don't really seem to be that interested but you would think where there's like potential violence about to imminently happen that they would be interested in that but they don't seem to be and so the reason i want to talk about this is because something far far worse happened just a couple weeks ago in thunder bay because police didn't respond to someone's concern about about violence so basically what happened is according to Ontario's um, special investigations unit, police were called on December 30th to, to a home in Thunder Bay about um, a domestic disturbance and they didn't respond. The SIU says they got a second call to quote, cancel the request. And I'm not sure what that means, but uh, next thing you know, they got a third call and it turns out there was a woman who was found dead in the home. And Oh my gosh. Yeah, nothing is really confirmed, but it really looks like, you know, someone called for help during a domestic violence incident. I'm not sure if it was someone in the house or a neighbor, but police didn't show up and the woman is is now dead. And that's just, it's just horrifying. So I, I think there's a problem here. And I think the problem is, you know, it's either too much crime or not enough police officers or possibly both and i mean i think we have a lot of police officers so i don't quite understand what the the issue is like we have a lot of police in toronto yeah i i don't know i i'm i'm not sure about that i feel like part of it is that police are are being pulled away to do all kinds of things that we they didn't do in the past like uh deal with overdoses all the time but I actually don't know if we have enough police officers or not. Like, I haven't looked into the statistics about how we compare to other places. But my sense of what's going on is probably that we don't have enough cops and that the reason for that is because the compensation for cops has gotten kind of out of control. Like, this is just a theory. But, I mean, in Vancouver, they're they're now paying cops... um, $122,000 $122,000 is the starting for a first class constable. And that's a lot, but not only that, like they work a four day week and yes, they work 10 hour shifts, but they also can work overtime on days five and six and they get really generous pensions. They get to work out at work. So all in all, we're paying a lot of cops like in the over 120,000. And um, I don't know if that's reasonable considering for example, what lawyers make, like I looked up in Ontario, uh, the median lawyer makes about 90,000. So if you can get lawyers for 90K, why are we paying cops like 120 or whatever? But anyway, that's I mean, the total theory. respect to police. I think yeah. what they do is I could not do a job like that. I'm like you, you know, fight or flight. I'm in the flight camp. Yeah. So <laughs> kudos to anyone who wants to go out there and fight. But it, yeah. I mean, this is there's clearly a problem here if police can't respond to violent 
crime or threats of violent crime as you witnessed at the police station and as this woman the inability of the police to respond for whatever reason left her dead which is an absolute tragedy in a society like ours where we're supposed to have police who are protecting vulnerable people who are asking for help it's crazy yeah exactly and i i also don't mean to uh you know offend police officers like they they have a hard job i couldn't do the job like you say we know we know you couldn't (laughs) they they put themselves in 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 the firing line occasionally like i said the cops that i did speak to once they investigated were super professional like i really felt like they did did their job um once i was able to get sort of the attention of the system so to say so don't know the answer to this i just have my my one theory but um i hope we do something about it because it's gotten to the point where you know in thunder bay it looks like someone might have died because of police um not responding in time so christine why don't we move on um tell me about your news headline that you were uh interested in this week sure so my news headline is about china and espionage and the case is called lee versus canada and it's from the federal court it was a judicial review of a decision by a visa officer who rejected the student visa of this guy named Yua Kang Lee. And Yua Kang Lee wanted to study at the University of Waterloo. He was admitted, he was accepted to Waterloo as a PhD candidate in mechanical and mechanotronics engineering, which I don't know what that is, but sounds hard. Uh, and he wanted to take his knowledge about these areas of engineering back to China, he said, to improve the public health system. And even though he had been accepted to the university, he still needed to be granted a student visa to study. And a visa officer rejected his student visa. And the visa officer in doing this rejection pointed to China's strategic interest in certain high-tech industries like biopharmaceuticals and noted that Lee had a strong interest in something called microfluids, which is a branch of micro or nanoscale technology and science. And the visa officer cited an article. The article was called, Why is China Becoming a Microfluid Superpower? Which said that microfluids are important for new medical research. And on this basis, the visa officer found that Lee was inadmissible to Canada on security grounds, specifically that he may engage in espionage as per the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. And the officer, the visa officer, relied on the connection between, and to quote the officer, Mr. Lee's education, his field of study and research in Canada, and open source information reporting on China's reliance on non-traditional collectors of information, including science and technology students who advance China's military and other interests. Specifically, the institution that Lee received his undergraduate education from in China, the officer found has a strong relationship with the defense industry in China, and the officer pointed out that China has strategic interests in certain high-tech industries in which Lee is involved, specifically this microfluids and healthcare. So after the visa officer rejected Lee's student visa, Lee brought a judicial review of that decision where it's assessed for reasonableness. And the federal court sided with the visa officer. Uh, they upheld Lee's rejection and found uh, that the decision to reject Lee was reasonable. So 
What makes this case so interesting is that the federal court accepted this broader definition of the term espionage. The court held, the federal court held that as hostile state actors increasingly make use of non-traditional methods to obtain sensitive information in Canada or abroad, contrary to Canada's interests, the court's appreciation of what constitutes espionage must evolve. And the court went on to say, in my view, in the court's view, the jurisprudence supports a broader definition of espionage. At its most basic level, the concept of espionage contemplates secret, clandestine, surreptitious, or covert gathering or reporting of information to a foreign state or other foreign entity or person. So long as the officer believes that there is reasonable grounds that these activities are occurring, the court found that a finding of espionage is reasonable. And the federal court held that this broader definition of espionage that captures, to quote, the reporting or communication of information, whether surreptitiously or publicly gathered, to such a recipient. So espionage can occur even if an individual like Lee is not under direct control or direction of a foreign state or entity, and even if that information gathering is public. So we have a friend, Mark Mancini, who has this really excellent newsletter about administrative law, and it's called the Sunday Evening Administrative Law Review. If you are interested in that type of thing, you can uh, sign up for it for free on Substack. And Mark did some pretty interesting analysis of this case uh, because he seems to disagree with the result here. So Mark called this a landmark decision that taking this expansive view of espionage under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. And the issue, you know, as it always is with standard of review cases, is whether the officer's interpretation and decision is reasonable. So in this case, whether his interpretation of the term espionage is reasonable. And Mark writes, I see very little detail about how the officer interpreted the provision, nor much of a reasons first analysis. And Mark writes that the impression is on that impression is only bolstered by the opening paragraph of the decision, which suggests that conditions have changed such that this broader definition of espionage is now appropriate. So the conditions being, you know, the fact that China is sending spies all over the world. And Mark goes on to say, it goes without saying that establishing what Parliament meant when it enacted this provision does not depend on what current conditions dictate, and that it would have been preferable for the court to analyze if and how the officer's decision connects to the text, context, and purpose of the provision. And he, you know, he concedes maybe the officer did do that, but there's no way to tell from the decision. Now, of course, there is some reason to think that Lee's uh, plan to come to Canada and study these microfluids would have uh, set off alarm bells and it very well could be a, a big espionage problem. But the requirement of the law is still to show that there are reasonable grounds to believe that Lee may engage in espionage, which uh, doesn't need to be at the direction of a foreign ent entity. And now that's Mark writes, not a very high bar, but it's not nothing. You still need to show something. And Mark says, to my mind, the officer's decision is linked together by a serious suspicion under the guise of reasonable grounds. And it's speculative whether this combination of factors being, you know, the link between his university, his undergraduate university and, and Chinese national defense, 
combined with his field of study of microfluids, combined with China's you know strategic ambitions, it's it's sort of speculative about whether those three factors would all combine to lead to this conclusion about whether or not Lee would engage in espionage. And Mark's concern based on this decision is whether all individuals with this profile will now be swept under this broad definition. And in Mark's view, the decision itself can be attacked on the basis that of the that there's a requirement for a rational chain of analysis without unsubstantiated logical leaps. And he thinks that those leaps look like they've been taken here, or at least there's no indication that they haven't been taken. Now, obviously, there is no question that China and as uh, and other governments as well uh, are engaging in espionage, that espionage is a real problem in Canada, and it is a growing problem. And it is a problem that our current federal government has very much failed to take seriously. You know, in November, you know, two months ago, CSIS warned of a Chinese plot to recruit Canadian government officials and academics. Last spring, we know that CSIS had actually withheld information about Chinese threats to conservative MP Michael Chong and his family. You know, this is a real problem and a problem that I and many others are concerned that the Trudeau government has not taken seriously at all. But Mark writes that this very real concern should not lead the court to reason backwards in this case uh, about what espionage should mean under the legislation rather than what it does mean under the legislation. And if there is a deficit in the legislation, if the definition is weak or a problem, it should be expanded by the legislature, not by the courts or by unelected visa officers. And perhaps it's just another indication of the Trudeau government failing to take seriously the issues of espionage. So that's the case. You know, I saw the headlines and I my immediate reaction was like, good, deny spies access to Canada. Uh, but reading Mark's analysis has sort of shifted my opinion. I mean, obviously, I still want to deny spies access to Canada, but I think that the solution to that problem must lie with the legislature and our elected officials rather than with uh, the courts changing the meaning of words because our government has failed to keep up with a growing problem. And I mean, if there's a problem with the legislation in this regard, there are certainly going to be many other problems with the legislation. So, Josh, any reaction to this Chinese spying case? Yeah, I mean, Mark's analysis, I think, is is totally correct. And I'm kind of amazed that, you know, long after this, the Baker decision originally came out and even Vavilov, which says, you know, you really need to have uh, a coherent and rational chain of analysis in your reasons, especially when it's an important decision like this, like this is a huge impact on this particular applicant. They need to, they need to justify that with, with proper reasons. And I don't think that happened here. I think it was just, um, you know, they're, they're starting with the outcome they want, which is that they need to deny this person because they're, they're so suspicious, but that's not what the law allows. So they need to. Yeah, this is this is out outcome first, not reasons first. Yeah, and I hate that. And I'm always amazed. I'm just amazed. Like even after the courts have been really clear about, uh, you know, how much how important it is to show your chain of analysis and reasons how so many administrative decision makers in the system just just don't do that. This whole issue, though, it is a really big issue, and I'm glad that people are finally starting to know 
notice this because um, I used to cover uh, universities for Maclean's and it was obvious even back then that uh, a huge number of PhDs in Canada are here to just sort of steal our intellectual property because it's the most cutting edge. It, it got me thinking too, I went to China on a reporting trip in 2018. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that China is like really, really good at building stuff. Like they can build a, a subway system in a few years. They can put up huge buildings and bridges in like the the shortest amount of time. It's just amazing what they can build, but they're very It's amazing. Bad. I think there's like a Louis C.K. joke about that. It's amazing what you can achieve when you just throw human suffering at a problem. <laughs> I don't just... think it's human suffering. It's it's they 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 just are the, their culture is set up in a way that they can build things things quickly. And it's one of the benefits of the communist system that Justin Trudeau has said he admires so much. But my point is like, you, you'll hear this from all the experts, they cannot innovate. Like there, there are very few inventions technologically or otherwise that uh, China has, has, has brought forward there. They, they tend to still copy the West and what the way, one of the ways they do that is by embedding spies in universities and then stealing the IP. So it's a big problem. The decision, I agree with Mark, wasn't wasn't legally correct, but um, we definitely need to to get on top of this. So, um, so enough about that. I think uh, we'll throw a break, and after that, we'll do our bad legal takes. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. So my bad legal take this week goes to the deputy mayor of Kelowna, who is accusing yet another political opponent of breaching a code of conduct. And... I'm sorry, I know I keep talking about these codes of conduct. I'm kind of obsessed with them. Um, but I really just don't think municipalities have any place attacking fellow politicians through these codes when they're just making political speech as opposed to, you know, engaging in some sort of financial impropriety or harassing some member of staff or or whatever, which is what these codes are are really meant for. So I talked before about how the Ottawa School Board uh, attacked a, a school board trustee, Nilly Kaplan Mirth, who I'm not a huge fan of, but was unfairly attacked with a code of conduct. And last week talked about John Robertson, that PEI counselor who's facing removal from his council position uh, because he engaged in controversial but perfectly legal speech. And this week, it's uh, like I said, in Kelowna, which is going after a counselor for his protected political speech. And the reason I had to make this my bad legal take is I think it's the most outrageous example yet. So this guy is named Rob Cannon. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's a former conservative MP and he's facing allegations. He broke the city's count code of conduct for this milk toast column that he had printed in the Kelowna Now website, which basically makes predictions for what he thinks is, is going to happen in politics in 2024. Uh, basically, the the deputy mayor says that this this column did not quote promote inclusivity. So first, uh, Cannon expressed doubt about whether the West will continue to support Ukraine, 
saying, quote, public opinion is not buying what the regime is selling. And I can see why this comment offends people or irks people, because there are lots of conspiracy theories about the Ukraine war. And while people like me think it's kind of a no brainer that the West needs to support a European country that's been invaded by, you know, a Nazi like figure like Putin, he's probably not wrong that public opinion is maybe shifting uh, towards the West, reducing its its assistance. So not sure how people, not sure how that um, violates any sort of code of conduct. But anyway, next up, he he seems to have offended people by saying Donald Trump's going to be the next U.S. president. And again, not a huge Trump fan here, but that just is a factual reality. Uh, Trump is is leading in the polls. It's not a reality yet, but I mean, I th- I think there's a chance. There's a pretty high chance. Yeah, I mean, he's. I'm not saying he's going to be elected for sure. I'm just saying make, he's making a prediction, and I think that's you know if the betting odds are probably in Trump's favor. It's at least 50-50. And anyway, um, next up, he mentions that Trudeau will have a tough year because many of the young people vo- who voted for him are, quote, no longer woke because they've, quote, awakened to the fact that they may never be able to own a home as long as these, quote, progressive liberals are in office. Then he predicts that this these quote, socialist, progressive, visionary policies will continue because NDP leader Jagmeet Singh won't break up with his, quote, man friend. And this seems to be the the word man friend seems to be the thing that people are think they're most likely to be able to get him on. And the CBC article says that it's potentially homophobic. And I can sort of see that. But then again, I googled man friend. And the first thing that comes up is just quote, someone that you are talking to and hooking up with, but are still in the in-between stages of being friends and or boyfriend and girlfriend. And I don't see what's homophobic about that. Like It seems it, like like a term for bro to me, but uh, I don't know. Maybe I don't speak this Gen yeah, Z I mean, language. There's like, like these things are so easy to interpret different ways, but even if you just take that that definition I wrote, I read out like these two do seem to be in some sort of budding socialist romance and nobody thinks necessarily that the intent behind that is homophobic. So I don't know where people are getting that idea, but anyway, the next thing he says, that's apparently beyond the pale is that in the year ahead, the school board will continue to get pushback from parents regarding the SOGI policy and the transgender movement within our public schools. And this again is, is, pretty much just fair comment like BC's sexual orientation and gender identity curriculum is quite controversial and it's entirely reasonable in my opinion to oppose some aspects of that it doesn't necessarily mean you're being transphobic or homophobic but in any event we need to accept that not everybody's going to agree with us on policies like this and we shouldn't be censoring people who we've elected who other people have elected to to office. And the last thing, and uh, apparently this was also deeply controversial, is that he told people he thinks they should download a Bible in a reading app and make it part of your daily routine. The CBC notes in their article that his his column was uh, problematic because it was, quote, religion tinged. He's telling people to read the Bible. What, um, why is that not allowed? Are you not allowed to have Apparently that's not allowed these days. Um, so yeah, my concern is not is not about what he said it's it's just the idea that you know freedom of expression it 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 does have its limits but they're 
they're only in sort of the most extreme cases, according to the court. And political expression like this is the most protected thing. You know, in Keekstra, which is the big hate speech case, Justice Dixon, for the majority, said the connection between freedom of expression and the political process is perhaps the linchpin of, of the Section 2B guarantee. In another Supreme Court case, they quoted uh, Justice Jackson of the U.S. Supreme Court, who said, if there's any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it's that no official higher petty can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. And I think that's what's going on here. Thankfully, I've, I've done a little bit of research on this recently, and here in Ontario, some integrity commissioners who are charged with these codes of conduct have actually recognized this. Christine, um, I don't know if you heard about this, but there was a Peterborough mayor, so Peterborough here in Ontario, the mayor on uh, Twitter, she told a couple of politicians to go F themselves. The integrity commissioner in her city found that this was strong language, but that's a form of political expression. It's not something that the code of conduct can can outlaw. So my bad legal take once again goes to uh, people trying to weaponize these codes of conduct, this case in, in Kelowna, BC. So Christine, uh, what's your bad legal take? So mine is a case from Alberta, the Court of King's Bench. I almost said Queens. I don't know if I'm ever going to stop doing that. Uh, it's a case from our friends at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And I used to work uh, for the Taxpayers Federation. And in fact, I worked on this exact issue that went to the court, although not this specific case. So the CTF had posted some billboards in Edmonton in 2018 about the carbon tax, which is an issue that the CTF has worked on for basically since the idea of a carbon tax was first proposed, they have worked on this issue. And the premier at the time, Rachel Notley, had said that a carbon tax gave Alberta the social license it needed to pursue pipeline projects. And obviously the CTF is against the carbon tax. Uh, so they put up this billboard that said, you can't buy a social license when it's not for sale. Uh, I'm pretty into this billboard. I agree with this this comment, I do not like a carbon tax and I think it's bad policy. Uh, the problem is under the Alberta Election Finances and Contributions Disclosure Act, uh, third party spending of more than $1,000 on, quote, political advertising must be registered with the chief electoral officer. And the CTF didn't want to do that because, you know, this is a policy issue they'd worked on for many years. And Frankly, the definition of political advertising is almost infinite. It includes this, I'm quoting from the legislation, advertising messages that takes a position on an issue with which a registered party, the leader of a registered party, a member of the legislative assembly, and or a registered nomination contestant, or a le registered leadership contestant, or a registered candidate is associated. So, if you've ever had an opinion on anything as a politician, now, if anyone wants to talk about that issue, now they need to register with the elections uh, officials. So in CTF's view, and in my view as well, this obviously is to this broad, broad definition is a problem. And the registration requirement combined with that broad definition, makes the law unconstitutional. It's an infringement of freedom of expression and of political speech in particular, which is the most protected form of speech. 
the law was passed in 2016 by the Notley government, and it's essentially a gag law. It makes it illegal, as I said, to spend more than $1,000 on so-called political advertising without first registering with the government, disclosing how much you're going to spend and how you got the money. And these are not zero-cost hurdles. This is a financial burden on anyone who wants to express a political opinion about a major about major issues in society. Uh, it's it has the effect of silencing political speech. Uh, now, the head of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Scott Hennig, wrote or he said uh, in this this op ed that he published, I think, in the Calgary Herald, he said um, requiring Alberta's. Al he said, requiring Albertans to register with the government before they express their opinion on a political issue is the antithesis of what it means to be Canadian. It's reminiscent of the Chinese government requiring protesters to register prior to demonstrating at the 2008 Olympics. Our governments require the consent of the people. The people do not require the consent of governments. Amen to that. Now, there were members of the public who complained about the billboard and reported it to the elections office because, you know, Karen's are going to Karen. And the elections office did an investigation and then fined the CTF $6,000, which is insane. You know, Elections Alberta had not had a problem with a previous CTF billboard. And they also just randomly increased the fine from a preliminary fine of $1,000 to suddenly $6,000, which is a lot of money for a not-for-profit. Now, the CTF challenged the fine, but the court found no palpable or overriding error and they upheld it. So the, the CTF's legal challenge against the law itself is continuing. But my bad legal take is, you know, the fine, upholding the fine. But more than that, it's the law itself. So that's it for for me. Yeah, that's outrageous, Christine. I, I can't stand these laws. They they do so much harm to our political process. Well, that's it for the show. As usual, we hope you will rate us, review us and subscribe. And just a reminder that you can support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel by following us on Twitter or by visiting our website, thecf.ca, where you can sign up for our Freedom Update newsletter from our colleague Russ, now including more content than ever before. The CCF is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please click that blue donate button on our website if you can. Thanks for listening.